Mother Teresa Middle School is a Jesuit nativity school that aims to break the cycle of poverty among disadvantaged youth and journeys with indigenous communities toward truth and reconciliation. To find out more, visit www.mtmschoolregina.com. Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is John Wester, the Archbishop of Santa Fe, New Mexico, and he's the author of a really important new pastoral letter, Living in the Light of Christ's Peace, a Conversation Toward Nuclear Disarmament. Archbishop Wester is ministering in New Mexico where two of the nation's three nuclear weapons labs are. The United States has been the nuclear power since World War II, and he wants to start a conversation that has us really reconsider the weapons of mass destruction that we have in our country. Do we really need them? What is the data on them? How much money is spent? What kind of destruction actually happens? Is deploying nuclear weapons something that we ourselves could even recover from? But in this conversation, I think we need to step back and take a look at this bigger problem that I think fuels our position on nuclear power, or is one of the things that fuels our position on nuclear power, and that's really this disposition of fear that we have in the United States. To me, it seems like it's the fear of the people crossing into the border, the enemy, the immigrants, they're going to overtake us, our way of life is going to go away, you name it. It seems like we're always worried that something's going to destroy our way our way as if that's the only way the world could ever exist. The social policies from this extreme group, whether right or left or whatever, oh, they're going to destroy Catholicism as we know it. And I think this fear that we have really is a fear of imagining a world that doesn't exist as it is today, but one that could be better. We just tend to think it always must be worse. Why? Because we are not going to be the ones in power, because we are going to be subject to somebody else. And I think we have to get over that. I think we have to, like Archbishop Wester says, we have to be willing to have a conversation. But how can we do that with other people when we're fearful of them or we don't trust them? And I keep thinking, well, in order for us to trust them, we ourselves need to be trustworthy. And so maybe we need to revisit our disposition toward other people who don't think like this or even those who we might think are our enemy. And so we talk about disarmament, but with doing so, we also have to think of the money involved. I mean, military spending is a big business. Nuclear weaponry is a big business. We're going to spend $1.7 trillion, $1.7 trillion over the next 30 years for modernization of nuclear weapons. Wow. Imagine what we could do with $1.7 trillion over the next 30 years for people in our country, for the poor for those in crisis. And so there is this importance to approaching this topic as a conversation. And Archbishop Wester makes that a point. I mean, even in the title, A Conversation Toward Nuclear Disarmament, I think that recognizes that this is not something instantaneous, but that we do need to have some kind of paradigm shift. And that involves an imagination that can think of a future that's maybe different from how we live today, but definitely not the one of mutual destruction that people envision as a reason for deterrence. So let's have the conversation about nuclear disarmament 
just war, living the gospel, being actively nonviolent. What does that look like? And let's start to imagine it for ourselves. What would that take? What might we have to give up in, you know, fomenting this revolution of love that is most definitely needed to bring about world peace? At America Media, we're committed to hosting real conversations at the intersection of the church and the world. We do it every day, online, in print, in podcasts, and in videos. And the best way to access all of that content and to support my show, The Gloria Purvis Podcast, is to get a digital subscription to America. How do you do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Archbishop John Wester is up next. Your Excellency, thank you so much for joining me on the Glory Purpose podcast and being willing to discuss your pastoral letter, Living in the Light of Christ's Peace, a conversation toward nuclear disarmament. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome, Gloria, and thank you. It's a wonderful pleasure to be with you. You know, pastoral letters have been a part of the church tradition from the beginning. We think about Paul's letters in the New Testament. And though I want to ask for you as a bishop, what's the purpose of a pastoral letter? How do you decide what topic or issue to write about? Well, I think a pastoral letter is something a bishop, a shepherd, a pastor writes to his brothers and sisters in Christ in order to bring up an issue pertinent to the community. could be the local community, the wider community. And of course, in the case of our pastoral letter, Living in the Light of Christ's Peace, it's the whole world community, basically, we're concerned about. And it's meant to apply gospel values, the teachings of our faith, in order to bring up for people's consideration and prayerful reflection these kinds of topics. So for me, I thought it was very important since Santa Fe is at the heart of the beginning of our nuclear arsenal that we developed and manufactured the very first atomic bombs that were actually used in war against people. Mm -hmm. I thought it was very important that we be a very much a part of this conversation toward peace and eventual nuclear disarmament. Well, there's something rich to me also that the original name of the town of Santa Fe is the royal town of the holy faith of St. Francis, you know, Santa Fe, holy faith. And we know St. Francis was a man of peace. And yet in this very town, like you said, is the beginning of our nuclear weaponry, which can pretty much destroy the world. And I also think it's a bit of a, maybe an invitation for us to recall who we are and what our faith calls of us, as it called the same thing for St. Francis and how he lived his life. But I know this letter about nuclear disarmament sort of started to take shape after your two trips you took in 2017, first to Japan, which was Nagasaki and Hiroshima, where atomic bombs were dropped in 1945, then back home, like you said, you visited the New Mexico History Museum. We saw the same story told in a different way. Could you unpack for our listeners what happened on those trips that inspired you to write this letter about nuclear disarmament? Well, I think it made it personal. You know, I think mm. we can debate these issues and we do debate them. And I'm hoping we do not so much debate, but converse to learn from each other. Yeah. And these are ideas and it's important that we do that. However, a more fundamental issue is our relationships. You know, scripture talks always about right relationships. 
to be in right relationship with God, to be in right relationship with one another. And so to me, when I went to visit with my bishop friends in Japan and went to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and to be there in Japan with the people, to see the people and to talk to the people. And then when you go through the museums there, to see the people in school, the classmates, you know, the families, mm-hmm. the generations, all these beautiful relationships that were just torn asunder by the blast of these horrific bombs. So I think that to me, that was the, it made it very personal. You know, we keep thinking, oh, yes, these bombs, they're hidden. We never see them, really. They're always in bunkers and Mm -hmm. behind barbed wire and all kinds of security. And we basically don't think about them. But the reality is that they are there. And these are the ultimate destroyers of relationships because that brings death, not just to us, but conceivably to the whole planet. Mm. And so I think that to me, that's what made it very personal is to think about the people You know, what's so interesting about that is I remember when I worked in corporate America, we were doing some kind of modeling where we had to model certain ideas for practices we were doing. And one of the people that was instructing us on how to draw these models talked about how she worked in the defense industry and the people who were building weaponry that killed people, they had to draw models in a way that made sure the person was not represented as being the receiving end of the action of these weapons because they found when it was their workers were having complete breakdowns and unable to continue the work. And so in a way, it has been, by having us be detached from who these people are, referring to them as the enemy, the threat, the this, that, and the other, it really does remove the human element. But if we could put that back in, because that's ultimately who the intended targets are of these nuclear weapons, it does change it. And as I had read more about the impact of the bombs in Japan, something that struck me as a young person, and maybe I'm not remembering correctly, but it seemed like I read something where people's, the shadows of people's bodies were imprinted into the ground from the blast. Mm -hmm. And I think the more that we actually talk about, you know, this was the actual impact of that nuclear bomb. Could you talk a little bit about what you saw of the effect of the bomb in your visit to Japan. Did you see those things like shadows imprinted of people on the ground? Yes, there was one in particular that stands out of a silhouette. It was a, a water tank, some kind of a metal tank, and you could see the outline of a human body. And so what happened with the bomb detonated, that body absorbed all that energy and heat mm. and was probably etherized instantly. And so that lack of that radiation heat on the is what you were seeing imprinted indelibly on that water tank. And then I think to me, what was really just wrenching what word to use was to think of those, especially those little children, mm. innocent children in school doing their lessons yeah. and then being victims of that. And frankly, as you know, Gloria, they, they said it was one of those situations where the living envied the dead, mm. uh, those who didn't die right away, but who lingered. And the bomb, when it detonates, has the light of death. So the, the contrast there, it was just so stark and so jolting. And so I felt, well, to be actually, on the one hand, see what the bombs did, and then to go back in this peaceful city and to see a museum where that talked about how they were uh, created and manufactured, et cetera, and deployed, the contrast was just so awful that I felt that it was important for us as an archdiocese, as a local church, to be part of this conversation with all people of goodwill, to talk about how we can come to an eventual place of mutual, verifiable nuclear disarmament throughout the world. 
Your Excellency, given that to me, at least I think this is how things seem to be, this atmosphere of fear in our country around we have to defend the West, we have to defend our identity, we have to defend our nation, our borders against immigrants, against hackers, against the pandemic, that this idea of fear has really made people feel like we have to have these strong defenses, we have to protect and guard what is ours. How do we talk to people that are already hyped up and thinking everything is out to destroy us, out to get us, to understand that disarming ourselves is the right response because we're followers of Christ. When some of these same voices say that we also have a right and a duty to protect ourselves, how do you balance that? How do you talk to people who think in those terms? Well, you bring up several very important points, I think. One is that whole notion of fear, the narrative of fear, you know, that we have to protect ourselves, the fear that we might be attacked, that we might be overrun. It's counterintuitive, perhaps, but I think of Roosevelt, who said very famously, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Interesting, he chose a different narrative. Mm. But the narrative you hear now is this one of fear. But to me, ironically, what we're doing to counter that fear actually increases the fear and increases the risk and increases the danger that we're in. Mm. We have to be careful not to allow those arguments that are rooted in fear to prevent us from thinking clearly about what to do going forward. The way we protect ourselves is by entering into conversations with people. The United Nations, for a good example, to come together as people, heads of governments, business, religion, to talk Mm -hmm. about these issues. You know, Jesus said, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And we put this in the letter too, you know, when the apostles wanted to call down fire from heaven, Jesus said, no. That's not the way of the cross. Mm. And so I think from a Christian point of view, and Pope Francis is always emphasizing this, is to talk. He said very famously, you know, the Pope Francis said, we must never grow weary of working to support the principal international legal instruments of nuclear disarmament and nonproliferation, including the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. In other words, these treaties, we come together and talk about them. And as God gave us the gift of intellect and to be able to converse with each other and to find the paths to peace. But trying to defend ourselves with these very destructive weapons, which even we would lose control of, frankly, it would be a, a conflagration that nobody could stop if we ever got to that point. This is not the way to protect ourselves. That's the irony of it. We have to have faith that God is at work in our world. Sometimes we rely far too much on our own resources, you know, because we have the technology, we think we can do everything, but we have to allow God's grace to work in these conversations. Sadly, the narrative surrounding nuclear armaments and the whole machinery that makes them and sustains them and continues to develop them, this is all funded by money and by mm-hmm. power and control. And these are things that, that really attack humanity and attack our relationships. We have to be careful here. I know people say, well, we have to defend ourselves. This whole notion of deterrence has been one that we've kept alive for a long, long time. Even the 1983 USCCB peace pastoral, and those at that time, that was almost 40 years ago, you know, they accepted that. But with the passage of time, as we continue to look at that, we see that that narrative of deterrence, again, plays on fear. You know, we're afraid, so we have to defend ourselves. Mm. But the key is not to build more weapons that make us more, should make us more afraid. But the key is to dialogue and have this conversation. 
And so that's what I'm inviting in the pastoral letter is that we discuss and we dialogue about this and not just continue to build these weapons because this whole machinery has to be looked at more carefully. But that narrative of deterrence is really one that we've gone beyond now because Pope Francis has said very clearly that even possessing nuclear arms is immoral. What do we do with that reality? We'll be right back. The National Institute for Newman Studies invites you to their conference, The Earthly Light of Friendship, Newman Circle, Influence, and Integrity, which will take place online and in person on March 11th and 12th, 2022. This symposium will explore some of Newman's relationships and how they influenced his life and thought, as well as how the stories of both Newman's friends and foes are told. For information and to register, visit www.newmanstudies.org. I want to talk a little bit more about the argument of deterrence because I was just, I don't know if I just mentioned this, but there's something sticking with me that people say we cannot have civility and peace without this threat of violence. Like people are less likely to say something if they know they're going to get punched in the mouth, right? And so they apply this to deterrence. Like we have to have this nuclear power in order to deter people from their corrupt will to power, if you will. Like, what about those, you know? So can you talk a little bit more about the argument itself about deterrence that you think might be flawed? Well, I think for one thing, we have to be honest and say that the narrative of deterrence has never been about just deterrence. The reality Mm -hmm. is, and we know this, is that our country and other countries have always had plans to use the nuclear arsenal for first strike capability. It has never been solely deterrence. So let me just for our listeners, first strike, meaning we strike first and they don't have a chance to respond. That's right. And destroy us with their nuclear power because we've wiped them out already. That's right. And actually, we know from documents that are now open, we know from those who study these things that generals did indeed recommend to the president that we strike first, that we wipe out these cities in Russia first, and then that'll take care of everything. So this has always been a reality. So we have to be very honest about that. Secondly, you don't defend yourself with the very thing that can kill you. What we have to do is to move away from that and find out what, how do we really defend ourselves? We defend ourselves by listening to one another, by working together, by you know taking the money that we're using to build this nuclear arsenal around the world and using it to help the poor. I mean, this is really what causes wars, if you think about it, is people who have nothing and they rise up or they feel threatened, a country feels threatened, whatever. So we have to remove those threats, poverty, sickness, and all the things that, that people go to war over. That's how you defend yourself. You don't defend yourself by using the very weapons that could ultimately destroy you. And thirdly, when we deal with the nuclear armaments, we're dealing with something that is, uh, it's a paradigm shift. This is something completely different. We're dealing with something that, frankly, ultimately we could not control, Mm. that we would lose control and it would take over. It would just, the bomb would just start exploding, the radiation. I mean, the half-life of these nuclear arms goes on for thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years. The planet would be just basically dead for who knows how long. So the bombs that were so tragically dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki were like little pop guns compared to what we have right now. Mm -hmm. And so I think humanity has to have a humility to recognize that we're not God, 
that we should not be and cannot be in a position where we can destroy life as we know it. We have to recognize the power of these weapons, that we're dealing with something that's just diametrically different than anything we've ever known or talked about. You know, so how might, as I hear you talk about nuclear disarmament, and you know, we're coming from this as people of faith, how could or how might nuclear disarmament be a spiritual practice? Well, you know, I think it has to begin with all of us have to has to begin with us individually. We have to mm-hmm. be convinced that this is the path of peace that we have to go, to move on and to make efforts to convince our legislators, our leaders, to move in this direction to keep the conversation going. And I think spiritually, you know, it's to pray that the Lord will give us the grace, the Spirit will guide us in the conversation, to be able to have the courage, the wisdom, the prudence, the knowledge, to be able to engage and sustain this conversation toward eventual mutual disarmament in the world. And so it's got to come as a groundswell from all of us. It's not enough, though, simply to be convinced of it myself. I have to actually do something. I have to actually write a letter to a congressperson. I have to actually bring it up in a parish conversation or have the Peace and Justice Committee of a parish or a diocese talk about this and make this one of their topics that they work on. Mm -hmm. Have study groups to look at the situation, study where we've been, where we are, and where we might be going. There are all kinds of ways for us to work about, to be convinced of it, but we tend to be lulled in a false sense of complacency. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the argument. We tend to fall back and say, oh, that's fine. We're developing our weapons. And we have, you know, I think the United States now has 5,600 or so weapons. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so we're safe. And, and that, again, is a, you know, this shows you how easily, and look how easily wars start, World War I. Yeah. You know, these things start, you know, with a, an assassination and one thing leads to another and you have a war. With conventional wars, it's tragic, it's horrific. But in a nuclear war, well, that's the end of the story. So there has to be an urgency, not only living peaceful lives, but have an urgency to do something to expand that peacefulness in my own world, my own life, to a broader, to have, I think what it boils down to is to have a concern for the common good. Catholic social mm. teaching has always told us that we have to be careful of the common good. This comes out a lot in the COVID-19 pandemic, the vaccines and the the arguments and debates and all between the mask or the vaccine. It's the common good that we have to, it's not just my individual rights, it's also the common good. And Jesus came to gather us together as the body of Christ. He didn't come to save us just one person at a time. Yes, he did that, but he saved us as a community, as a people. Amen. You know, one of the things that were also big concern during the pandemic is the effect on business, money, money, money. So this factors in as well in nuclear disarmament, because I imagine in New Mexico that these nuclear facilities are big money. And so people are like, well, if we do that, what does it do for our jobs? What does it do for, how do you speak to that part of it where, you know, they're like, okay, I heard what you said, but okay, it's affecting our day-to-day lives in terms of money. Well, you know, it's interesting. Pope Paul VI, St. Paul VI, spoke about that in the 60s and 70s. And he said very clearly, and he was very prescient, he said that we can convert our laboratories and those that are creating and working on nuclear arms into peacemaking facilities. And they've already done that in many ways. It's very clear. And to really effect, really accomplish nuclear disarmament, it's going to take a huge technology, machinery, and infrastructure to do that. Mm-hmm. And so Lanol and Sandia and Lawrence Livermore in California, these all these labs 
will be put to good use. And they're already doing it. They're helping in medicine and so many other ways. So it's just a question really of converting. I think that we are very concerned about the jobs and about people's livelihoods and supporting their families. But I think I'm convinced that this is very achievable to transform these labs into peacemaking facilities. You know, there's a lot, I think, for us to really ponder here. And I can imagine people saying, you know, we can, we do have a a just war theory, but do you ever think that the means by which we engage in war, people want to say there's a just war theory does matter, that there's never a just reason to use nuclear arms? I'm convinced, Gloria, that there is no such thing as a just war theory when you're talking about nuclear arms. It's impossible. But you look at all of the criteria for a just war, and it's all obliterated. When we talk about nuclear arms, you have to take it out of the conventional thinking and mindset and paradigms. We're in a whole different universe, a whole different world with nuclear arms. And really all of the usual conversation elements that we talk about, such as just war, it goes by the wayside. There's just absolute necessity to rid the world of nuclear arms because of the absolute destructive power that they have. And one last thing that I want to say is you aren't the only one saying that just war is impossible. I mean, you aren't the only one saying that, talking about all the principles of a just war, you know, having a just cause, being a last resort, possessing right intention, reasonable chance of success, especially when you think about nuclear weapons, no way, mm-hmm. and being proportional. But you aren't the only one saying this. I mean, Hasn't the Holy Father said something about nonviolence, just war? You're quite right. Pope Francis is just a gift to the church and a gift to the world. He is a remarkable man. And basically, my letter, frankly, is following his lead. He's the one that spoke in Hiroshima in 2019. And his speech, he said, as I said, you know, even possessing nuclear arms is immoral. This pastoral letter is really following his lead, is meant to accept his invitation to really engage this conversation as he's asked us to do. And it's meant to uh, point to his efforts at bringing about world peace. And one of the wonderful things about this letter, I've been making some new friends because I'm really recognizing how many people in our country, Fox Christie and uh, the Association of U.S. Catholic Priests and so many other groups, of course, the USCCB has been very much engaged. Bishop David Malloy came out with a statement about a month ago on the importance of looking at this issue. So, I mean, there's so many people who are involved in this, and they've been working for decades here in New Mexico. We have so many wonderful people and organizations, veterans, and so many who are working for the abolition of nuclear armaments in our world. So I don't feel at all alone. I feel Mm. that I'm making new friends every day because of this wonderful letter that hope has an impact. I think this is a lot for us to really meditate on and consider about nuclear disarmament and really being actively nonviolent. What does that mean for us? Maybe it even changes our perception of what world peace means. It's not something for them over there. It's something for me individually. It's something for my nation to really consider, which does require us to have a paradigm shift, something I think we're frankly afraid of. But we say, Jesus, I trust in you. And we have to recognize, I think, that being followers of Jesus, people who love Jesus, means perhaps our comfortable ways of living and thinking and our old approaches 
are going to need to be jettisoned in what I call a revolution of love, a revolution of true discipleship, where we may perceive or be perceived as weak, but really we're strong in Christ. And you've given us a lot to think about. We'll put a link in the show to your pastoral letter for people to read and for them to pray and meditate on this. And I think these are conversations that we'll have to have for a while so we can start to move in the direction of world peace and really imagine what that looks like, what it would be. But let's not be foolish in thinking that the change only has to happen for them over there. We too have to have that change, that revolution of love. Oh, beautiful. Gloria, that's a <laughs> Thank you. You said it beautifully. I oh, appreciate you what wrote you it. Said. <laughs> you wrote all the pieces to make me think <laughs> about it. So, and we had this discussion. So, Your Excellency, thank you so much, A, for being willing to write the pastor letter to give us something to think about and to share of what impacted you in Japan as well as in your home state of New Mexico. And may we all try to live the holy faith of St. Francis. Amen to that. Thank you, Gloria. (laughs) Thank you very, very much. Thank you. God bless. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Also, could you leave us a review? I would love to hear from you. And you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes and Maggie Van Dorn. It's engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.